Hello everyone, this is Matthew Fragapani. I do um, chose to do my project on Luis Diaz. Um, this was a very interesting case to learn about. There's a lot of really good information uh, on the Innocence Project page. <clears throat> um, uh, it unfortunately goes to show how easy wrongful convictions can be and um, how uh, easy it can be for DNA evidence to be incorrect. Um, and it kind of shows how prevalent it can be in our criminal justice system. So um, with that, I'm just kind of going to dive right into this. Um, so first, uh, Luis Diaz, um, he uh, was wrongfully convicted in Florida on May 9th of 1980. And he was charged, um, uh, he was charged and convicted uh, with kidnapping, sexual battery, and aggravated assault. Um, he was sentenced to uh, 13 to life plus 55 years, and he ended up uh, serving 25 of those years in prison before he was exonerated uh, in 2005. Um, this is just going to be kind of a quick overview, and then I'll go a little more into detail of everything um, a, little, a little bit. And uh, this, uh, all this information is taken directly from the Innocence Project page um, um, on Luis Diaz. Um, so firstly, uh, in 1977, Luis... Uh, was first suspected as the Bird Road Rapist um, in um, this area in Florida. And between the years of 1977 and 1979, 25 women were attacked. Unfortunately, many of those women were sexually assaulted during those attacks. Um, Diaz was arrested and charged with eight of those rapes associated with the Bird Road Rapist. Um, so again, uh, back in 1977, uh, he, uh, Diaz was first suspected, um, in these attacks. And, uh, this was because when the first victim saw him at a gas station where she worked, um, she identified him as the man that she, uh, that had attacked her. Um, later in 1979, another victim identified Diaz from a photographic array. And because of that second identification, Diaz was arrested. And that was in August of 1979. Um, kind of jumping ahead here, uh, in 1993, two victims uh, ended up recanting their identifications of Diaz, and uh, that kind of helped pave the way for uh, the exoneration process, although there's still a long road ahead of him um, for that full exoneration to take place. Um, in 2001, uh, he was able, because of those um, help um, with help of those um, two recanting um, of the identifications, he was able to apply for parole. And again, that was in 2001, but unfortunately his application was denied. Um, later in June of 2005, there were tests from two different laboratories that confirmed um, that the original DNA matching uh, was false back in uh, when he was uh, convicted of the crime. Um, with that, um, the leading issues that led to this wrongful conviction uh, was eyewitness misidentification and unfortunately improper forensic science. And that is something that we've been talking about a lot lately and is very prevalent um, with this case and um, uh, with what we've been talking about. Um, so again, that was kind of just an overview of, um, of the whole thing. I'm gonna get a little more, go a little more into detail uh, with everything. Um, so, Multiple victims, uh, back when they were first trying to identify the um, bread road rapist, um, he was described as um, a Latin male, approximately 200 pounds and between the height of six foot and six foot two. Um, and I said that he spoke English. Um, so 
Diaz first became a suspect after uh, the very first victim saw him at a gas station where she worked. Uh, she had been attacked in July of 1977, and uh, she was able to provide the police with a description. And uh, she described the attacker as a Latin male, about 200 pounds, six uh, foot to six foot two tall, who spoke very good English uh, but had a Latin accent. She stated that he uh, drove a two-door green or black car. Uh, this victim did see uh, Diaz at that gas station four days after she was attacked. Um, he, owned, at this time, owned a four-door green Chevrolet. The victim was able to take down his license plate, and she uh, contacted the police, and uh, the police were able to trace uh, that uh, license plate number to Diaz. Uh, the victim was able to identify Diaz as her attacker from looking at a license photograph and then from a photographic uh, lineup. Um, at this time, though, Diaz only weighed 134 pounds and only stood at five foot three. So that really goes in with witness misidentification um, or misidentification, excuse me, because that's very far cry from six foot to five three from 200 pounds to 134 pounds. Um, that is how it goes uh, to show how easy it can be to misidentify people. Um, and also at this time, uh, Diaz spoke no, no English at all. And because of that, there are no charges filed. Um, and then a few, after these attacks um, uh, continued, they became a little more public and uh, police again focused on Diaz. At the time, another victim uh, made an identification and identified Diaz from a photographic uh, lineup. And because of that, he was arrested in August of 1977. And uh, this is taken directly from the Innocence Project page. Um, and it says, two days later, four, uh, 14 victims were asked to view a uh, live lineup. Diaz was among that lineup, and his attorney was present at that time. Uh, five of the victims identified Diaz positively, um, one only identified him tentatively, uh, four made no identification that day, and four identified other men in that lineup. Um, so with that, um, the trial that came, uh, he was able, Diaz was able to maintain his innocence and he proceeded, uh, proceeded to a jury trial in May of 1980. Um, all of these cases uh, were consolidated into a single trial. Um, and, uh, a search of Diaz's home, uh, was, uh, inconclusive. There was no items in there that linked him to the, um, crimes. No weapons were found. Um, there was no blood or semen found in Diaz's car. Um, although four of the victims that had been raped were raped in the attacker's car. And again, nothing was found in, uh, Diaz's car. Um, because there was no solid evidence that was found, um, the defense wanted to mainly focus on the identifications and uh, the um, kind of wanted to obviously focus on that. Most of the victims had described the attacker as the taller and heavier man. Um, descriptions of facial hair and skin also differed from Diaz's appearance as well. And the defense also showed that none of the victims uh, noticed any unusual odor from the attacker. Um, and uh, because at that time, Diaz uh, worked as a fry cook, and he always smelled heavily of fried onions after his shift. Um, when, and also because um, this, the evidence that, the DNA evidence that was used, um, the state presented the victim identifications of Diaz um, and improper testimony um, from a forensic um, analyst. 
uh, serology, um, serology, which uh, is the scientific study or diagnostic um, examination of blood serum um, that was um, being t uh, collected on swabs collected um, from the body of one um, victim showed uh, that the uh, victim and the perpetrator shared the same blood group markers. And that means um, basically um, the analysts uh, testified that um, improperly that 10% of the world's population um, could be exclu uh, excluded by this evidence. Um, under these circumstances, the failure to inform the jury that 100% that of the male population could be included um, and that no one can be excluded uh, was highly misleading and that um, led to the wrongful conviction. Um, so with that, um, I'm going to move on to the post-conviction, to the time that he was in prison, to the time that he was uh, in uh, he was in the exoneration process. Um, Diaz continued to have a base of support um, from people after he was convicted. Um, in 1993, again, as I mentioned, uh, two victims came forward and recanted their, recanted their identifications of Diaz. Um, Diaz was able to file a motion to vacate his conviction in 1994, and uh, for years the case was locked um, into litigation. Um, and then, as I mentioned before, finally in 2001, he was able to try. Um, he was able to become eligible for parole, but um, the uh, parole board uh, denied his application, and he was uh, eligible for parole in 2001, but he was actually denied in 2003. Um. So after this time, um, after those two uh, recant, uh, recanted uh, identif identifications came forward, prosecutors, um, they allowed for the um, DNA testing of uh, that rape kit that was originally used. Uh, that evidence was sent to a private forensic lab in for, uh, uh, California. And while the testing was being performed, more evidence from the same case uh, was located and sent to the Miami-Dade Miami Police Department. Um, in June 2005, as I mentioned before, uh, the test results um, from both of those laboratories indicated um, that it did not match Luis Diaz from the actual uh, actual person who committed these crimes. And then a second round of uh, tests, um, round of testing, also corroborated these findings and um, uh, coincided with that. Um, and then with that, uh, on August 3rd, 2005, the charges against Luis Diaz were dropped and he was able to walk away a free man. And uh, he um, was uh, 67 years old at the time and he um, uh, was able uh, to actually truly proclaim his innocence. Um, that was questioned back in 1979. Um, and because of that wrongful conviction, uh, in 2012, Diaz received around $1.3 million in compensation from the state of Florida. Um, and with that, that is the uh, main overview of this case. Um, as I mentioned before, it was a very um, interesting case, and I really enjoyed learning about it. Although very unfortunate, um, and like I said, it can go to show, to how, show how easily um, these wrongful convictions can be and how prevalent they are. Um, but all in all, it went to show um, how with the um, updating and, adva and advancement of forensic science um, and technology and all that um, in this day and age can um, help exonerate people who are wrongfully convicted and um, lead to um, being able to ha allow them to walk away free. So with that, that is all I have to say. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Uh, thank you very much.